And our scripture reading tonight is from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 21 through 24. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for this day, God. We thank you for uh, your word in particular, God. We thank you that uh, we can come together, that we can open this uh, this book that you have, have given us, um, these words that you have spoken to us um, through your prophets down through history. God, and that we can get a true glimpse of you and your character, a true glimpse of, of who we are as your creation, God, as fallen people, God, as those who have been redeemed by your son, God, that we can get a clear picture of the, of the great calling that you have on our lives, um, God, that we can see uh, clearly, maybe most importantly, um, the way that you have saved us, the way that you have come into um, our lives um, through Jesus Christ by his perfect life lived in our place and his perfect death died in our place, God, through his victorious resurrection, that we can be, um, God, justified, uh, we can be reconciled, we can be redeemed, we can be adopted, we can be brought um, into uh, your fellowship and your family. Father, we, as we open up your word, um, we ask that you would bless us through it. Um, we know that we can uh, not understand it rightly, uh, without um, your Holy Spirit um, working through your word. God, in many ways, that's exactly what we're talking about in this passage of scripture that we come to today in Luke chapter 10. And we recognize that um, if it is not for the power of the Holy Spirit working through us and in us, um, God, that we will misunderstand what you have to teach us, uh, God, and that it will fall on deaf ears and, and fallow soil. So we ask for your blessing in those things, God, that we would um, see uh, this text, that we would understand it rightly, God, that we would believe it and apply it to our lives um, and and receive from it what you would call us to and what you would have for us. Um, Father, we thank you. We praise you. We ask you. Amen. Woo. That's kind of scary. The baby was scared for sure. We're good. We're good. You good. We're good. I'm just going to let everybody sit for just a second. Just to sort of get your. Get your. That's right. Yeah. Fight, flight. We're good. 
All right. So if you get your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 10 if you're not already there. So we're kind of talking about, we, we, we talked about a passage that was, uh, not controversial was probably not be the word for it, but maybe a, a text that was difficult to talk about last week. We're going to do the same thing again this week. Um, we're talking about a text that is not, um, not necessarily something that everybody enjoys talking about. There is, I would say, I would use the word maybe controversial about some of the things that would surround this text, okay? Because um, we're talking about God's sovereignty and salvation. We're talking about the way that he sovereignly reveals himself to to people. Um, and um, and that can be disconcerting to people, okay? Um, it can bring a lot of confusion, particularly depending on what kind of theological background you are from, okay? And so, so we recognize that kind of coming into the text, um, that these are some things that are sometimes kind of difficult for us to, to wrap our heads around in different ways. Um, kind of remember where we've been in the last few, uh, last few weeks. Um, the comments that, that Jesus makes in this passage are directly in connection with those things we have been talking about. So what it looks like to be a true disciple of Jesus, what it looks like to actually follow God in our daily lives, um, and to be on mission, you could say, for him. Um, it directly applies to what we've been talking about when it comes to evangelism, about taking the gospel to the community around us uh, and the implications of that. It, it directly relates to last week's passage about the idea of accepting and rejecting the gospel, the cost of those things. Um, and so Jesus is saying all of this stuff with that in the background. Those comments are, are, are the context of this passage. And so here's the deal that's kind of starting out. One thing that I want you to notice, though, is as we read this text, there's not a lot of exposition and explanation in the text. Okay, so Jesus just sort of says these things and, and puts them out there. And, and for our purposes, what we're going to do is while this is going to be our primary text in, in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to go to another place in Scripture that seems to uh, explain these things a little bit better, like give you the why behind some of it, okay? So, so we're going to jump over in just a second to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so we'll kind of be there uh, largely um, for a bunch – uh, throughout the rest of the evening, um, but we'll be obviously coming back to to um, home base, which will be in in Luke ten twenty one through twenty four. So let's kind of dig in and, and see what we've got. So starting in verse twenty one of Luke chapter ten, again he says, "At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit." This is Jesus. He is rejoicing greatly in the Holy Spirit, and he said. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for doing so was well-pleasing in your sight. Okay, so let's stop for a second and just come to grips with the, the blatancy of those texts. Okay, the truth of the gospel has been hidden hidden from the wise and the intelligent by God. It has been revealed specifically to these people that Jesus calls infants. And so we are assuming that that is a metaphorical infant. He's not talking about actual infants, but he's talking about people who uh, have a childlike um, uh, response to God in these things. And, and lastly, um, he did it. God revealed and hid because 
he wanted to uh, because it was pleasing to God to do that. So again, stop and, and think for a second uh, and let the sort of the questions and the heaviness of those words rest for a second. That God hid these things. That God revealed this, these things. And that why did he do that? Because it was pleasing for him to do it that way. Pleasing to hide it from the intelligent. Pleasing to reveal it to the simple, to the infants. So, like I said, I don't think, we don't get a lot of exposition in the text. We don't get a lot of explanation as to why these things are. Jesus is just talking to the Father and declaring these things to be the way they are. And so if we just stay in Luke, maybe we don't see exactly what the context of those things. We would just kind of say, well, this is just the way things are. But but when we go to other places, we get a little more explanation. And so that's why we're going to look over in First Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Because Paul is dealing with a very similar issue, making very similar comments but, but explaining a little bit more what is going on behind the scenes in the reasoning of God. We know this is pleasing to God to do this, but why? Why would God behave in this way? Why, why would God do these things? 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Brothers, consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. But it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became God-given wisdom for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. All right? So in this passage, in 1 Corinthians, Paul uh, draws attention to these, these certain people who are chosen, he says. And he gives four, four descriptors for those four people. They are foolish, the weak, the insignificant, and the despised. God specifically chose those four kinds of people. And if we think about it, I think that a correlation can be made between those four types of people and the infants that Jesus references, right? Because if you think about it, in a lot of ways, those are the characteristics of, of infantness. Is that a word? Um, right? Infants are foolish, okay? And again, we might say, well, that's kind of an odd way of talking about a, a an infant or a child, but, but they do. They, they don't, they do things without reasoning, without thinking about the consequences. Um, they're foolish in many ways. They're certainly weak, right? They don't have the, they don't have the strength of, of, of knowledge or character or certainly physical might. Um, again, it's maybe a strong way of saying that many of them are insignificant. Um, now what I would say is no child is insignificant, but we can certainly appreciate the fact that the world views children as insignificant oftentimes. That's partially the reason why the world feels so at ease when it comes to issues like abortion, because children are nothing. They're, they're unimportant. Um, in fact, they may even be the fourth descriptor. They may even be despised. And again, probably a strong term. None of us would use that of children, um, certainly of infants. But there is certainly, we can see how much of the world sees children as a burden. 
as an inconvenience. And again, makes sense as to why, um, when you view a child that way, um, why you might be led to say that their life is, is, is insignificant. Even though those, those, those people, those four characteristics, uh, that the world sees those people as, as, uh, of little value, God has specifically chosen those four types of people to reveal his truth to. All right? Why? Why does the text tell us that that's the case? Is it because as, as infant, foolish, weak, insignificant, despised people, do those people deserve God's choosing on the basis of those characteristics? Meaning, are those characteristics uh, meritorious in some way? And the answer is no, I don't think so. There's nothing that makes those people any more worthy of God's choosing than anybody else. There's nothing about being foolish that is inherently good and that God is rewarding because of the merit that is found in foolishness or weakness or insignificance. There is no merit there, okay? So then why does God choose those people? Well, somebody else might say, well, it's, 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 it's because there is a circumstantial kind of propensity to believe among those people. What I mean is this, um, the poor are, are unencumbered by uh, the things of the world that would maybe hold certain people back from believing, they would say. Um, they more easily recognize their spiritual destitution because their entire lives are destitute in certain ways. And so to borrow the line from, from the Bob Dylan song, right? You ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. And so if, if, if you have nothing to lose, then maybe you're more likely to recognize you have nothing to lose and then to take a chance on faith or something like that. And, and there may be some truth to that, but I don't think that's what's going on in this passage either. Um, that is not the focus. The, the poor did not just happen to come to Christ because of something in their situation. No, what the text tells us, both in the Luke passage and the Corinthians passage, is that these people were chosen to receive the revelation of God. And moreover, that the truth was hidden from the wise and the intelligent. That is to say, God chose not to reveal it to those people. Why? Again, we ask that question, why? Well, we see it in verse 28 of 1 Corinthians. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, why? To bring to nothing what is viewed as something. God specifically has chosen those kind of people to bring to nothing those who are wise and, and strong and intelligent and, and everything else. Right? We know that we have, we talk about this a lot in here because it's one of the sort of defining paradigms of the way I understand the Bible and the gospel and everything else. We are self-justifiers by nature. What we do all day long in our heads, in our wicked hearts, is figure out ways why we're okay, why we're right with God in the universe because of something that is in us. 
And so we do that ceremonially. We say, well, I'm right because of my, my, I have, I have, I've been part of the right ceremonies or something like that. Um, we do that associationally where we say I'm the right ethnicity, the right political party, the right denomination, the right subculture. We do that in terms of our understanding. We say, I think rightly about these things. I believe in the right way. And therefore that makes me, um, puts me in right relationship with God. Uh, we have right kinds of actions that, 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 that we associate with, with our own righteousness. And we say, no, I, you know, I, I'm sold out to the right things. I fight for the right causes. I, um, I, I serve in the right ways. And so that makes me right. And then obviously a right morality, um, moral standards, legalistic standards, even I do things and live my life. And because of those ways, I merit right relationship with God. I deserve to be in right relationship with God. We are self-justifiers all the time. And even if we don't make it that hardcore in our head where I'm saying, you know, I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do, we may not say that makes me right with God, but it at least makes me better than the rest of you folks, right? Makes me closer to him than a lot of you, okay? Our minds are always doing that. It's the gospel that comes in and pushes against that, right? If we are believers in the gospel, it's the gospel that's always saying to us, no, it's not the way this thing, this works, all right? And that's what we see in this text. Jesus has hidden these things, hidden the gospel, specifically to bring to nothing the things that are viewed as something. Everything and everyone that is held up as good or worthy or deserving of God's favor based on their own merit, God says, I will humble them and I will reveal that all of their pretense is worthless. Okay. Imagine it's kind of a silly illustration, maybe, but imagine we get to heaven and everybody gets a mansion. Okay. And, and the poor person gets this mansion and, and he's giving some angels a tour of that mansion or something. And he says, uh, Look at my awesome uh, hot tub that I've got. And, and the angel says, where did you get that? And he says, well, well, God gave it to me. And look at this awesome grandfather clock. Where'd you get that? Well, God gave it to me. Well, look at this beautiful kitchen you have. Where did you get that? Well, God gave it to me. Because the poor person had nothing and he brought nothing with him and everything that he has is God's, right? The problem is, is that the, the rich man, the wise man, he's not in the same situation. You look around at his house and they say, where did you get your kitchen? He says, well, God gave it to me. What about this grandfather clock? Well, actually, I brought it with me, right? I brought my intelligence with me. I brought my morality with me. I brought my faithfulness with me. These were things that I brought to the table. And sure, maybe God has cleaned them up. He's perfected them in some ways. But really, they were mine to begin with, and they are part of the righteousness that I have. Jesus says in verse 21, 29, he chooses the nobodies, the weak, the insignificant, the despised. And he intentionally doesn't choose the wise and the intelligent and, and the, the, those other people. Why? So that no one can boast in his presence. That there will be nothing that when we stand before God, that we will present and say, I did my part to be in right relationship with you. Verse 30, but it is from him from God that you were in Christ Jesus who became God-given wisdom for us, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, right? Those are three words to basically say, sum up the idea of saying everything that is good in you 
is from God through Christ. Everything. You didn't bring anything to the table in your salvation. In God's sovereignty, he has chosen once again to turn, and we've seen this all throughout the Gospel of Luke, have we not? To turn everything on its head, to turn the way people think about life and the universe and everything and flip it all upside down and say, nope, none of that is the way it is. Everything comes from me. It is a judgment on the arrogant, but notice also that's not even exactly the main point of it, although that's certainly a piece of it. At the same time, it is to uphold Christ as the source of all good and salvation. It is to exalt Christ. All right, so it is to humble the wicked, the arrogant, but it is also to exalt him, to demonstrate that nobody can be saved by anything except being in Christ. And so we see all through the scriptures, right, that, that God is not ashamed of his own glory. I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will give my glory to no one else. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no under no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, right? Jesus is not shy of saying, this should all be focused on me, because I'm worthy of that. I think that's the reason, and it's the same justification that we find. It's the reason why Jesus chose the cross to put to shame the wisdom of the world on the day of the judgment. So it, at the same time, the cross looks like an earthly foolishness. But at the same time, it is divine wisdom when we look at how the cross played out. And, 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 I, and I think this is the case. God could have made it happen in a different way if he'd wanted to. Jesus could have still sacrificed his life and died for sin some way that was more honorable, more dignified, more noble, right? But that's not what God chose to do. That is not the means by which he chose. Instead, Jesus dies in a way where he is marginalized by the Romans, hated by the religious, and abandoned by his followers. And again, the previous passage tells us why. To humble the arrogant to humble the self-righteous, and to exalt Jesus as the all-in-all. That's why he chose the cross, and that's why he chooses the infant. That's why he chooses the ignorant. That's why he chooses the insignificant. That's kind of the first bombshell of this passage, but then Jesus just keeps on kind of laying the pieces on. Because the next thing he says in verse 22 is, is just as, as maybe hard to swallow for somebody who is just hearing these things. It is only Jesus who can show you the truth of that realization. It's only Jesus who can make sense of all these things. Verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows who the son is except the father. And the father, who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the Son determines to reveal him. Okay? Again, just think about the weight of those passages. No one understands who Jesus is but the Father. And no one understands who the Father is except the Son and whoever the Son decides to reveal the Father to. The revelation of the knowledge of God has been handed over to Jesus completely. He is the dispensary now, right? He is the point of contact. If you want to know God, it is through Jesus Christ from now on and for all of eternity, period. 
There's no other way. If, if Jesus doesn't reveal God the Father to us, then you don't know it. And you can imagine what a surprise and a difficult thing to swallow that was for the Jews who had known God through the prophets and the law and the word and the sacrifices and all of those things for generation on generation. And now Jesus says, unless the Son reveals the Father, you don't know it. All of those things now in the coming of Christ have been handed over to Christ. The revelation of who God is is not found primarily in the sacrificial system and all these things like that. They are found in Jesus Christ. And he determines who receives that knowledge. Only Jesus can show us who the Father truly is now. And we cannot know God unless we know Jesus. And he shows us who God is. And again, if we just read that passage in Luke, there's not a lot of explanation to, to that situation. But Paul kind of zooms in for us in, in the next chapter of 1 Corinthians. So it makes me wonder if it's almost like these things come in logical progression, that, that Paul is dealing with them in a congregation as they deal with them the same way we would kind of come through these things. 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Okay? Notice the wording there. The natural person does not accept the things of God, and the natural person is not able to accept the things of God. So Paul is speaking to our lost situation from two sides. He's saying you got a problem with your desire and your want to, and you got a, a problem with your ability, your can, able to. We will not receive the word and the gospel, and we cannot receive the gospel if it is not Christ who shows it to us. It's a it's the issue of, on one side, our own wills rejecting those things, but then there's also an inability on our part. And so let me let me tell you the way Martin Luther talked about it. In spiritual and divine things which pertain to the salvation of the soul, man is like a pillar of salt, like Lot's wife, like a log or a stone, like a lifeless statue, which uses neither eyes nor mouth nor senses nor heart. And all teaching and preaching is lost upon him until he is enlightened, converted, and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Or maybe somebody more contemporary. John MacArthur says, Until the Holy Spirit intervenes in the unbeliever's heart, the sinner will continue to reject the truth of the gospel. Anyone can memorize facts, listen to sermons, gain some level of intellectual understanding about the basic points of biblical doctrine. But devoid of the Spirit's power, God's words will never penetrate the sinful soul. It must be Jesus that reveals these things to us. To the infant, to the weak, to the foolish, to the insignificant, he does. He opens their hearts to receive these things. And here's the thing that we're, we're, we're kind of, as we move towards the end of this passage, it is a glory and a blessing that that is the truth. Because again, I think what happens is, man, a lot of times we come to a passage like that and immediately we are sucked into the controversy of it. 
to the part of it that goes against our wills and our rationality and our understanding. And we're like, well, that can't be right. If it's only Jesus, then why do we evangelize? And how, how come missions? And, and how can he blame us? And how can judgment and all these things? And we start going like that. That's not Jesus' focus, though, in the passage. Did you notice from the very beginning what it said? It says, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit at these things. Okay, Jesus is breaking into doxology in the middle of this. He's not throwing out this philosophical conundrum that we can all kind of whatever. Jesus is saying, isn't this awesome that God has handed over all of this stuff to me and I reveal it to whom I please? I've shown it to the infant, to the wise and intelligent. I've hidden it so that they will be humbled and I will be exalted. Isn't this incredible? Praise God. Praise the Spirit for doing these things. And then notice this, it says, verse 23, it says, turning to his disciples, he said privately. That's a weird phrase. Um, I, that's, that's something that I notice. It's a cool thing about when you, when you have to preach uh, a book, you preach through a book, right? You start noticing little phrases that are weird. That's not something that gets said a lot. Jesus has said a whole lot to his disciples over the course of, of the gospel of Luke so far. And I don't think he's ever said, and then he took them aside privately and said to them, the way it does and the way it says it in this passage, okay? And what does he say to him? He says, blessed are the eyes that see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see the things that you see and did not see them. And to hear the things that you hear and did not hear them, right? Like he, he, he pulls the disciples aside and he said, what a time to be alive, guys. Like what a time to, to get to be in the world, right, to be at a time in history where the, the Spirit is revealing these things to you. People have wanted to see this for all of human history, and they missed it. They didn't get to. People sought after it. They prayed after it. They lived their entire lives begging that God would show them certain things. And they lived their entire lives and died never having gotten the vision of these things that the disciples are getting. Man, when, when we contemplate the incredible fact that of the era of human history that we live in, man, it should blow our minds about the way that God has revealed things to us. When we, when we look at a, a passage, when we think about the blessing that we have in, in, in the way that God has, has revealed himself to us, I think sometimes we, we end up thinking two ways about it, right? It can elicit in us a certain sense of pride sometimes. Like there must be something in me that has made Jesus pick me for some kind of reason. That can happen, even if it is our humility that is the thing that we're so awesome about, right? And I'm so humble. I'm so humble that God just looked at me and went, He's the one. I got to have that guy on my team, right? We can, it, it, it's sneaky how, how those things happen some, right? Um, but we can have a pr sense of pride that God has shown, shown us. But then there's also this thing that happens when we think about those things that it can elicit a sense of guilt, I think. Something like a spiritual survivor's guilt. Like, you know, when you probably are aware of like if there's a, a plane crash or something like that and a few people survive, there's often this thing called survivor's guilt where people, they ask the question, man, why me? Why did I survive? Why, why did I get to have this blessing? You know, I didn't do anything that was any better than any of these other people. How come I'm the one that lived? And I think we can sometimes, as we contemplate um, God's choosing and God's revelation to us, there's a little bit of that that comes. In fact, I think that's part of the reason why many people reject that doctrine is because they feel like, Somehow it, it, they are unworthy of it and it doesn't seem fair. 
And so I'm, I'm not going to believe in this. But here's the deal. Notice this. Jesus reminds us by the force of this passage. Man, pride and guilt are not the right responses in this time. All right? When God has blessed you and decided to show you something that he has hidden and withheld from other people, that's no place for pride, and it's certainly no place for guilt. What should happen right then is what Jesus is doing. You should rejoice in the Holy Spirit that you have been graciously given that opportunity. When we are saved and when we reflect on our salvation, that moment of God's unmerited kindness to us is something that we should say, praise God, right? It should well up in our hearts this joy and this rejoicing that comes from that. And again, Jesus is looking to the disciples and saying, do you guys get what you have access to? Do you get what you have, you are privy to in this time in history? And Moses heard the voice of God on Mount Sinai, right? He stood in the, the physical manifestation of God on the mountain. But Moses did not experience the revelation of Christ like any believer sitting in this room has today. Solomon, I think, in all his splendor, all his wisdom, did not know. He did not have access to what you have access to every single day by virtue of being a follower of Jesus Christ and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah had this vision of the enthroned God and the light and lightning and the rainbow, you know, coming off of the throne and, and the woe is me for I am ruined. It's the, it's the passage that we use as the, as the layout for our sermon. I mean, for our, for our service every week. But he did not understand the glory of God the same way as someone who has come to know the crucified and resurrected Messiah. And so you may look at the biblical age and you may think to yourself, man, wouldn't it have been cool to like seen the Red Sea part? Like that would have been cool. It would have been cool to stand there and, and Moses do whatever he did. And all of a sudden the red, that would have been something to see. It must have been incredible to watch the walls of Jericho fall down after you had prayed and walked around them just sort of going, are we crazy? And then all of a sudden it happens and the whole thing's clapped. That would must have been incredible to see such an, an immediate answer to prayer like that. It must have been incredible to have built the temple and had this whole thing constructed and then think, what now? And then all of a sudden to see the Shekinah glory of God and a column of smoke and fire come out of the heavens and, 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 and plant on the temple and, and, and dwell there. And you may think, might think to yourself, man, if I could see those things, if I could, if I could have been there, my faith would be so much more sure. Right, I would, there, there would be a blessing there that would be so much more significant than, than the way I live my faith out on a daily basis. And again, I'm sure those things would have been incredible to see. But what I'm telling you and what Jesus is saying at the end of this passage is this. Abraham, Moses, Solomon, all of those guys, they wish they were you. Right? They wish they lived now. They wish they had a knowledge of, of the, of the sinless, crucified, resurrected Messiah. They wish the Holy Spirit had indwelt them uh, just by virtue of trusting in that Savior. They wish that they were in your position. So what do we do? Praise God. Praise God for his choice. Praise God that he has revealed this to infants. Praise God that he has re revealed these things to the insignificant. Give him thanks for what he has done. 
Don't sit there and argue with him about the, 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 the fairness of this whole situation. I mean, you don't have any, there's no leg to stand on there. There's only Jesus. There's only Jesus and his sovereign choice. It's been handed over to him. All these things are in his hands now. And he decides who he will show and reveal the Father to of his own free will. Don't focus on misguided unworthiness because you're not worthy. But don't focus on misguided unworthiness. Don't focus on some sort of misguided worthiness of this thing either. Man, just forget yourself altogether in this process. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Jesus is where the focus should rest. Jesus is saying, the folk, in this passage, Jesus is saying the focus is already on me. It's all been handed over to me. I have made these decisions. I have blessed you with this knowledge and I have hidden it from others. Let the pride and the guilt of all that disappear. Let the contemplation of those things and, and how they all work together disappear. And instead, rejoice and give thanksgiving to the graciousness of God for the way that he is saved. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we, again, we, we ask that you would give us a, a sense of these things in our daily lives, a sense of, of your graciousness and your goodness, your grandeur in salvation, God. Uh, Help us to have hearts that are thankful. God, help us have hearts that are turned to you in, in recognizing the, the crazy, infinite graciousness and mercy that we have been shown. God, not based on anything we've done, not based on our own goodness or our own wisdom or our own ability or our own morality or our own connections or anything but that only because you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, God, to exalt your son. God, to humble the arrogant and the wicked. God, you are wise. You are good. You are gracious. You are faithful. You do as you please in all circumstances. And in all circumstances, we can trust that everything that you have done is good and right and just and merciful. God, help us as your people to live in light of that, to give you praise every single day for the salvation that you have provided. God, and help us to, in that joy, God, that we would spread that word abroad. God, knowing that you are sovereign, knowing that you were going before us and, 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 and working in the lives of people, but God, that, that people would see the joy that we have and the hope and the, and, and the blessing that we have because of the gospel, and that we would share that and invite other people um, to believe and receive that as well. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song. Yeah, Lord, in my
you're here tonight. Um, glad that we could would share in the word together. Um, if you would be in prayer this week, uh, we've got a, a youth retreat coming up this weekend. And, and so just pray that, pray that it would be a useful time for, um, for the youth, that they would be blessed by it, that they'd be drawn closer to Christ in it. We're, we're talking about what seems kind of a broad topic about what is a Christian. Um, but again, I think it's an important thing, especially for young people to, to, to um, get a firmer grasp of that and to understand the way grace and faith um, come together in Christ um, to save us. So just be in prayer for that. Um, as a result of that, uh, actually next Sunday, um, Tanner is going to come and he's going he's gonna to preach for us next week. And so we get to say hi to Tanner. We hadn't seen him in a little bit, um, but he's going to be continuing on in Luke. He's just going to go to the next passage. I think we're talking about the story of Mary and Martha. Um, uh, which is, is, is a great passage. And so Tanner's going to share with us next week, but hope you can be here for that uh, and see him and encourage him in those things and to, to hear what God has for us. So um, let me close this uh, tonight with this uh, benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, turn his face towards you 
and give you peace. We'll see you next week.